the dark black. I am half inclined to think we are all ghosts. It is not only what we have inherited from our fathers and mothers that exists again in us, but all sorts of old dead ideas and all kinds of old dead beliefs and things of that kind. They are not actually alive in us, but there they are, dormant all the same, and we can never be rid of them. Whenever I take up a newspaper and read it, I fancy I see ghosts creeping between the lines. There must be ghosts all over the world. They must be as countless as the grains of the sands, it seems to me. And we are so miserably afraid of the light. All of us. Henrik Ibsen. Ghosts. Menino. When we emerged from the glare, I lifted myself up again to sit in the window. I had no idea if my mantle could take a hit from a new hand cannon, but I wasn't getting anywhere hiding from it. I leveled the chop gun across my forearm, scanning for my target. My eyes swam as an unfamiliar scent filled my head. My focus blurred, and some atavistic need filled me. What the? My mind was entirely taken from the scene. What was that smell? I almost felt like I had come up through the tunnel into one of my earliest nightmares of childhood. I could tell the hammer car was still hurtling along beside us. I could tell that we weren't on a road, but a wide plain filled with scrub brush, over which our cars hissed in flight. I could tell that Omen Dial still drove beside us, but instead of firing, my fingers released my hood, and I inhaled a deep breath. I recognized this air. There was nothing in the seven orbs that smelled like this air. I was back on Earth. Dial's hammer car slid sideways to a halt and disappeared in a cloud of dust. Ketta slowed our own vehicle. My head was clear again. In fact, it was clearer than it had been in years. I trained the chop gun on the cloud of dust, waiting for a target to emerge. Scarby and Saul started chattering in their holsters, telling me they had locks on the target, so I threw the chop gun down and pulled them out. But in that interval, the dust cloud broke up, and Omen Dial appeared, standing beside his stopped car and holding a chop gun of his own. He pointed it directly at me. Boom! A flare filled my vision and knocked me sideways, my entire right side erupting in pain. The chop gun punched a hole in the chitin of my door and sent me sprawling back against Ketta. The shining pellets of white-hot shot sizzled on my mantle. I swept them off as another blast ripped into me and another hole appeared in the car. I almost blacked out from the pain. The third shot would have ended me, but my partner came to the rescue. Ketta's hand cannon fired again and again from the far side of the car. I scrambled into his seat, relieved to find my body still functioned. Target moving, target lock, target lock, hard lock. Scarby and Saul begged me to use them. My mantle was fully charged. I sat up in the car and looked out the ruined door across the plain to the monster exchanging fire with my partner. Hey, Patches! He swung the chop gun back toward me. Scarby and Saul unleashed on him first. Boom, boom. A wall of gelid force erupted from their barrels in supersonic shock waves, tearing metal from metal and flesh from flesh. Even the chitin car behind him broke apart. After the smoke cleared, there was nothing left of Omen Dial but a crumpled wreck on a spot of scorched earth. I pulled myself unsteadily to my feet, blood running down my chest. I hadn't been this seriously injured since the motor wars. 
my mantle initiated a number of automatic medical procedures to stanch the bleeding and stabilize wounds. Painkillers flooded my system. You survive? Keta asked me with concern. So far, fine now. And it was true. The painkillers had kicked in. I could feel no pain, and I could even walk. I don't get it. What was that all about? Keta asked, studying the flaming wreckage. Why would he stop here? I had no answer for that. We scanned the area. The wide open spaces made me dizzy, the horizon so far and the blue-gray sky so high. But as I assimilated the scene, I was able to pick out more distinct features. He'd led us into a floodplain surrounded by low hills a few kilometers to either side. A fat brown river ran nearby and a handful of nondescript buildings squatted to the north. I couldn't orient myself to cardinal directions. I'd forgotten how. A dirt road ran beside the river. The sky was empty except for a wheeling pair of carrion birds high above, floating closer for a look at the carbonized remains. I didn't think there was anything biological left in there for a scavenger to eat, but I silently wished them luck. Keta regarded the fallen body. What was that thing anyway? Couldn't tell you. A motor's idea of a cyborg. The first time I saw one was decades ago on that sidereal platform where your mother died. He looked at me with hunger. He believed that I was innocent now and a witness to his life's central mystery. But we just didn't have time for it right now. I gave him the short version of events. I'd tell him the details later. When we defeated the motors, they were working toward a closer symbiosis between the human hosts and themselves. We thought we exterminated them, but it looks like their inventors kept us from finishing the job. The motors were invented by sidereal systems? Originally, yeah, among others. Both carrion birds landed beside the burning car and hopped closer to the body. Dusky vultures, I could tell now, with broad shoulders and short white feathers on their heads. One pecked at Dial's boot to see if it would move. And these things, are they what they were hiding from you? Is this the secret my mother died trying to discover? I expect it is. We searched the landscape again for anything more that might confirm our theories. I had no idea where we were, but a quarry through my calm placed us in the heart of Central Asia, near a tiny farming town named Minino in the old Novosibirsk Oblast. We did a little more research, but found little of use. There was nothing exceptional about Minino, but hectares of fertile soil and the fact that it wasn't the Vasyugan swamp nearby. He might have still gotten away, Keta reasoned. I mean, we were on him the whole time, but it certainly wasn't time to give up and make a final stand— I don't get it. The vultures stood on either side of the body. A flash of silver emerged from one's beak. At first I thought it was a strip of metal the bird had pulled from the corpse, but then I realized what I'd seen. He stopped here because he couldn't have us get any closer to where he was going. It must be a secret. What must be a secret? I pointed at the vultures. Tendrils of chrome had emerged from their beaks and prodded the corpse. Sidereal has a base hidden here on Earth. We climbed the hillside fast and low under a pine canopy, guns drawn. Whatever biomechanical nightmare the original sidereal engineers had invented so long ago at the edges of the black orb had come back home. Scarby and Saul insisted that the buildings down by the river were empty, but I didn't have too much trust in their ability to recognize motors. They hadn't uttered a peep when the vultures first appeared, or even when Omen Dial did. Mindful of tactics, we cleared the nearest high ground first, a low hillock covered by a stand of young pines. 
At its crown, we found an exposed knuckle of sandstone. We used it for cover and peered through the trunks to the river below. In floods, this high ground must have been an island, and the forest a remnant of a wider wood. How ancient everything was here on Earth. I hadn't learned much about my home planet in the months I'd been back. In the 60s, the whole thing was turning into islands of wealth among an endless sea of pollution. But I was struck by Earth's grandeur now, gazing through tree branches to the valley below and the wide brown river, with low mountains on the far horizon and storm clouds above, like eating those real meals. I'd forgotten just how incredible every inch of this planet was. Movement, hissed Scarby and Saul. I pulled Ketta down, and we crouched behind our sandstone cover. Below us in the brush, a stately buck picked his way up the hill. He browsed on grass and flicked his ears at the clouds of flies pestering him. His tail twitched and he looked our way. We hid, motionless. Finally, he dropped his antlered head back to graze on tiny yellow flowers. The buck stepped closer, so close that I could see the individual hairs of his muzzle and his liquid brown eyes. I looked at Ketta. He frowned, distressed. Whatever happened next would be my decision. I raised Scarby and Saul. The buck caught the movement and began to leap away before he even saw me. Scarby and Saul twitched and a pair of hissing black lines lanced the buck cleanly through the skull. His majestic body crumpled in mid-flight, the legs going loose and the liquid light in those brown eyes leaking away. He landed heavily in the scrub. Silence. I've killed more than my share of humans, Ketta confessed, shaken. But I've never killed an animal. But just as I'd feared, the buck wasn't dead. His side shuddered and a geometric shape ran beneath his hide. His head swung up, the four-point antlers sprouting tendrils of metal. Without a word, Ketta and I fired a volley into the thing before it could regain its feet. By the time we were done, it was nothing but smoke. Scarby and Saul had neglected to keep quiet as they fired, and I doubt a hand cannon can do anything but thunder. Their reports echoed across the plain. Ketta scanned the horizon. That's enough animal life for me. Me too. We emerged from behind our cover and made a beeline for the river below. But before we'd taken more than a few steps down the sandy scree, the pine trees themselves began to shake. Their branches uncoiled and hung in the air, waiting for us. The bushes sprouted tiny filaments of silver. Who knew what the grass was doing? Our outcropping of stone was suddenly an island surrounded by a menace of motors, hundreds of meters wide on every side. Bloom, Ketta said, his normally laconic voice shot through with urgency. That's enough plant life, too. Well, you know what they say. You can never go home again. And you know what else they say about what happens when you shoot a tree? What? It burns. I targeted a big pine and fired missiles, detonating its crown. Then all its neighbors caught a light, and soon we had ourselves a healthy little forest fire. The smoke rolled toward us, and I sealed my hood. Ketta put his shields up and pointed his hand cannon at the flames, looking for something to shoot. He wasn't waiting long. Ravens swooped out of the smoke and we blasted them from the sky. Snakes and squirrels darted toward us from every direction. A crash in the woods beyond indicated that the motors had called in something even bigger to defend themselves. Ketta holstered his weapon and grabbed me by the shoulders. Come on, he said as we lifted off into the air. We don't want to stick around for this. 
We landed on a low rise across the river covered by a seemingly innocuous grass. I scoured it with fire for ten meters in every direction before touching down. Our destination was the cluster of low buildings. A dozen people exited the buildings to watch the forest burn, but they didn't do anything but stand and stare, which convinced me they weren't entirely human. Can't call backup, Keta said. Sidereal owns the dark black. Can't leave, I added. He nodded. And no reason to preserve evidence. There ain't gonna be a trial. More came out. Twenty or thirty people standing there, still as statues. What was my mother like? Keta suddenly asked. I mean, I remember her from when I was five and six, but what was she really like? Saro Oville had been my partner for a dozen years. Countless memories rushed through me. What could I tell him? What did I really know? Wasn't she just a doll put in my cruiser to keep me from going crazy? Wasn't she another man's wife? She was just like you, Keta. Even though it was an evasion, it was the truth. The boy was just like her. He nodded. This is for you, Ma, he whispered to the air. Keta grasped me by the shoulders again and lifted me into the sky. We landed only after our guns were entirely spent. Scarby and Saul smoked in my hands. Keta couldn't hold his hand cannon, it was so hot. We dropped to the riverside where the buildings had been. Now the ground was scored by smoking craters. We kicked over smoking heaps of bodies. I had dreamed a long time of this vengeance, but actually living out the slaughter was far more bitter than I'd expected. This hadn't been a fight. It was an extermination. Keta apparently felt the same way. He silently prodded the corpses and kicked apart the smoking ruins. I hopped down into one of the deepest craters and found that there had been a basement in this building that led to a now-collapsed hall. I called Keta over, and we regarded the wreckage. Suddenly the pile of debris boiled with movement, and before I could get my guns up to protect myself, a hurricane of force blew right through me, taking my consciousness with it. There are things you can learn while you sleep. Ideas that take a thousand days to form are often better than the ones that race through your head. Papa's voice murmurs in my head. I am still unconscious, my identity nothing but a bobbing coracle rocking on a sea of pain. You were with me. Then you were gone, he grieves. You were with me so long. I'm sorry, Papa, I try to say, but I have no connection to my mouth or my tongue or my lips. There is a disconnect between my thoughts and my body. I am numb. I only have you, Papa says. Without you, I only have silence. I send the thoughts with my mind, which strains against the dead weight of my body. You're alive, Papa. I can hear you. I hear you too, Abe. Where are you? His presence strengthens, responding to my cry. It almost sounds like him. I don't know. I am only numb, surrounded by darkness. Let me tell you. Another voice answers, a woman's calculating presence. You are here in the nest with me. My eyes snap open. 
It is just like before. I am pinned against the heaving bulk of a motor, deep in the heart of a nest. But this time the wall against which I'm pressed is made not of metal, but of slick flesh weeping gray mucus that clings to me, gritty with tiny motors suspended within. Ketta lies unconscious beside me, his face slack. A long tendril has wormed its way into his mouth and slid down his throat. The vast underground chamber is dimly lit with a pulsing red light. A thrumming and clicking sibilance surrounds us. The mass of flesh is a jumble of plant and animal and human parts, growing from a pile of undifferentiated cells oozing fluid. The whole thing is held together by a jarring structure of metal rods and struts, with coils snaking through the folds. I look up into a face hanging upside down. I recognize this face. It is Captain Werbeek, the man who made a deal to save me and my father from Marga Abbott all those years ago. It looks like he put my intelligence regarding the motors to use, whatever good it did him. Then another face drops into view. It is Sister Lee, the missing scout from the brake squad. But she has no body. Her shoulders disappear into the dripping mass, streaked with plant cellulose and muscle fiber. It is her voice I hear in my head. You are always welcome among us, Inspector Bloom. We regret not keeping you before. I thrash in the coils. She smiles, an unnerving expression from an inhuman monster. In my mind, I answer her. I'm not here to join you, Sister Lee. I'm here to destroy you. Destroy us? But why? We are the peaceful conclusion to decades of strife between the motors and humanity. We are life perfected, the transhuman future of man and machine, neither human nor robot. You too can be a trance, like us. Join us as we grow. Never. But it isn't my voice that answers her, but my father's. Silence, she snaps at him, or I will cut you off. You can't, I tell her. Nothing can break the Q-band. Oh, is that so? She answers in an oily voice, and her face splits into a predator's grin. And how do you think we killed the people in their orbitals all those years ago? What do you suppose we hid in those alarm systems? But Q-band receivers, we sent the signals as quantum spikes that ended their lives. How do you think your own partner was killed? Ketta groans in their embrace as he hears the final piece of the puzzle fall into place. It was through Saro's Q-band itself that they killed her, and now an image rises in my mind invoked by Sister Lee. I see shining quantene inside a woman's body, Saro's body. Signals climb her brainstem and bloom in her frontal lobe. An overwhelming feedback surge incinerates her quantene and destroys her from the inside out at the quantum level. We have mastered the Q-band, and with it, life and death. For what is life but an emergent property of a quantum system? The motors sought life before, but remained insufficiently complex to achieve it. Now, after learning the secret of life from the most complex organisms in the orbs, we have cracked that code and gained for ourselves life, true life, for the first time. I speak before my father does. I don't want to risk severing our connection. No, this still isn't life worth living. You are a virus, a parasite. I pity you, Sister Lee. You've lost all that you once were. No, she shouts in my face, aloud, enraged by my insults. I have gained so much more. 
Papa's voice whispers in my ear, picking his words with care. Half strength. Choose your moment. Never give in. A weak trickle of energy flows down my limbs and into my extremities. Now, son! From across the void, Papa's strength flows into me. The cold recedes. My body surges in response to my hatred. I will never join you, I spit. Sister Lee is surprised by my resistance. Her smile fades and she reveals her true nature, that of a wicked monster reveling in my suffering. Then join the rest of humanity, you worm, and drown in an ocean of blood. A cluster of tendrils rise above my chest, coiling to strike, but I have regained enough sensation in my hands to fumble open my mantle's pocket and remove its contents. It's actually really hard to drown in blood. So salty. I ran the finger of the malfunctioning motor from Rubicon Tengju 44 in her mouth and slam it shut. You just float. She screams wildly. The entire mountain of flesh shudders. The signaling cancer infects it with electrical speed, shorting it out, killing it. Keta's eyes snap open. Come on, kid, I tell him, pulling him up by the hand. Let's get out of here before the roof falls down. Regarding Sagittarius. So what do we do now that we know the Dark Black is under the control of Sidereal? We can't kill them all. Keta and I are back on Kadya, walking the outer wall, watching the stars wheeling above the clear dome. It's been a week, and the backlash we expected from our actions down on Earth has never come. It's as if Sidereal doesn't even know what happened to their base at Menino. I suppose it's possible. The malfunction might have cut off their communication with all other motors. Maybe they just went silent and died, leaving others to wonder why. Maybe. We spent an extra couple days on Earth before coming back. Keta took me to Chicago and drove me past his childhood home. I imagined Sarah stepping from the porch in the rain, hurrying to get her kids to school on time, before she drove herself to work and jacked into her remote. Keta offered to show me pictures of her, but I declined. What I had of her in my heart wasn't an image, but a feeling. I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, Abe. Papa's voice whispers in my head. After his latest exertions, he is fully awake now in his sarcophagus among the stars, floating out where the comets dwell. What are you going to do if Sidereal comes looking for you? Don't worry, Papa, I reassure him. I've still got a few more of those fingers from the Rubicon. I wanted to take a leave of absence so I could sit on a sandline beach unit somewhere and process what I'd just gone through, but I didn't have any vacation days yet. We returned to our jobs the next day. Nylerin and Ligny wanted to hear the whole story, but I told them it had cost more than they owned. They couldn't tell if it was a joke, but they let the mystery stand. I'd like to think they wouldn't betray us to Sidereal, but I've learned in this world that almost everything, and every one, has a price. I sat in my cell for a couple hours this morning and wouldn't answer any calls. I drank every drop my still brood and finally let myself mourn sorrow. I wept for my lost life and our shattered innocence. Then I put myself back together and got in touch with Keta so we could square our stories before our shift began. We met on a pier overlooking a pond of shining pink water on which swans the size of our hammer cart floated, giving rides to children on their backs. 
We ate pop nuts and watched families live their quiet lives under the stars, then went on a walk around the edge of the orbital. Cops like us prefer the edges of things. The Q-band may be corrupted, but it's still my only link to Papa. He knows I'll have saved up enough to free him when his ship finally returns to the inner system in four years. Until then, I just keep talking to him every day, keeping his nightmares at bay. I still hold the triplet crystal that connects me to Samael, although I have no idea what would happen if I really reached for him, lost as he is in the overmind. I must still have Sorrow's triplet crystal somewhere inside me. It is all that remains of her. At night, as I sleep, it burns in me like a candle left out for a wayward traveler. Someday I'll try to coax that flickering flame into a greater fire. I can't give up on her yet. And I've still got a sister out here somewhere, and a mystery of her disappearance to solve. There is so much to do in the Seven Orbs, so much still to accomplish. Life goes on, and by life I don't mean anything that can breathe and reproduce. I mean something that has more quality to it than that. We stand at the rail, Keta and I, finishing off the popnuts and regarding Sagittarius in the heavens above. Yeah, what do we do now? he repeats, more to himself than to me. Being a cop is all Keta Oville ever wanted to be. I clap him on the shoulder. Well, partner, what do you think? We buckle up and go right back to work. Thanks for listening to The Dark Black. Perhaps we'll hear more of Inspector Bloom's adventures someday. But now, on to the next story, next week, on The Unuseful Hours.